Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, where you'll hear advice from experienced safety leaders on how to protect your people and business. I'm Sarah Prattley taking over for Peter today. I'm excited to welcome my old friend Ian Phillips back to the show. He was a guest a couple of years ago while he was the Vice President of International News at the Associated Press, or the AP. He spoke about strategies for keeping journalists safe in war zones. Coincidentally, his episode aired just days before Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, Ian is the Director of News and Media at the United Nations, so obviously I had to invite him back to discuss what two years of war in Ukraine, a concurrent conflict in Gaza, as well as the Sahel region of Africa mean for organizations worldwide, and what they can do to stay informed and resilient in a new era of global turmoil. Let's dive in. Hi, Ian. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Your last episode with us aired just days before Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in 2022. Can you take us back to that time? Remind us what your roles and responsibilities were at the AP back then and how you and your people were really impacted. Sure. So I was actually in transition myself. I had been international editor at the Associated Press, so in charge of all news outside the U.S. But I was actually moving into a different role. I was reviewing journalist safety, seeing what was required. Um, I was involved in crisis management. And yeah, suddenly we had employees arrested. We had Russia invading Ukraine. So it was a real sort of jump into the deep end for me and for the organization. As, as you well know, news organizations prep for these moments, but there's never enough prep, really. You have to be really nimble. You have to think in the moment. So I was part of a team that was thinking, how do we deploy? We already had some people in the field from previous weeks that had gone there just to get the lay of the land, just that critical eye on the ground that is looking at where to stay and routes and escape routes, preparing for all eventualities. So I was part of that team with an eye on deployment, but also safety. Did we have the right training and planning for all scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it's very hard to plan for all the logistics and everything around a situation like that, really unpredictable. I obviously don't think any of us expected that two years later, we'd still be in a position where there's an ongoing war in Ukraine, nearly daily bombings and disruptions. How would you say global organizations have really been impacted by the war over the course of the past two years? Well, it was a shock to so many. And, and I think it's a good opportunity now with the anniversary to think about this, because with events going on in Gaza and conflicts elsewhere in the world, I think people are forgetting. And it really is worth stopping for a moment to think how much this conflict in Ukraine changed the world. It really did. You yourself say, we were all a little surprised that it's gone on this long. Many people were surprised it even happened. You know, I was thinking just about that today, how at the time, especially in Europe, governments were saying, this isn't going to happen. This is a show of force on the border. US intelligence was saying the opposite. They were saying, this is going to happen. But there was a sort of complacency, I think, uh, a sense of, no, how could this possibly happened that one country take over another in this day and age. And of course it happened. And the changes since then have just been monumental. And it's affected everybody. It's affected organizations, the UN or NATO. I mean, NATO has actually expanded, which you could say perhaps backfired for Vladimir Putin. It was an organization that was perhaps lacking direction, but now it's gained more purpose, it's gained one more member and maybe another with Sweden soon. So it's affected things geopolitically. It's affected the United Nations. It's very interesting here where I now work that countries have aligned as a result of this conflict. It's changed 
the way relationships are held geopolitically. It's affected companies. It's affected individuals. Heating prices in Europe flew up. The price of food flew up. How many people knew that Ukraine was the breadbasket for so much of the world? They, they exported so much grain, fertilizers from Ukraine and Russia. This affected that global supply chain in ways that I don't think people really had factored in. And we're still two years on feeling the effects of that. Inflation that the world suffered was in part due to this. So it really is interesting to see how conflicts are not contained within those borders where it's actually happening. It has reverberations around the world. So yeah, who wasn't affected by that war and will continue to be affected by this war? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard to kind of reflect upon just the magnitude and the scale, everything that you mentioned from the region or from the area definitely are still feeling those reverberations and those impacts that you mentioned. What would you say are some of the biggest takeaways or maybe lessons learned from the war that organizations should keep in mind as far as it, you know, pertains to resiliency and even just keeping people safe? Well, I think the one thing that has struck me most in the Russia-Ukraine conflict is the use of misinformation. It has, it's a plague. And it's happened in the past, of course, there's been propaganda, there have been people lying, but it really has reached a new level. I, we feel it here at the UN. I felt it in my previous job at the AP. The AP was doing some really heroic reporting in the field, particularly in Mariupol, and the importance of eyewitness journalism there was historic. If the team hadn't been there, it would have been very easy to deny what had happened. But the fact there were journalists on the ground allowed the truth to come out. And it's so difficult to contain misinformation. And individuals, whether they're on social media or tuning into their favorite TV station or buying a newspaper, they're all at risk of getting this, especially on social media. So I look back on moments in my career and I can remember back in 2016, I interviewed Bashar Assad in Syria. And I remember it was the first time I had really heard a world leader just say, fake news. It's fake news. He was actually denying at the time that a photograph of a child in an ambulance who had been in an explosion and was terrified and covered in dirt, he was denying that had actually happened and just said, fake news, fake news. And I remember thinking, how brazen. But fast forward to 2024 and the last couple of years, you actually expect that now. You don't have incidents where there isn't this complete war over the truth. So it really has brought home to me the importance of eyewitness journalism and facts. It doesn't have to come from journalists. That can come from all sorts of sources, uh, organizations. But people and companies need to know truth. And they need to know where they can go to get those facts. And it's increasingly difficult. In the Gaza conflict, I have been at times looking on social media in that moment of breaking news, a major event, trying to understand what's happening. And I've given up because I've been duped. I've looked at accounts that I think are true and they're actually fake. And I don't realize until a few hours later, that is a terrible situation to be in. And I consider myself media literate. So for people that are, who are really struggling in this area, I think it's a scary situation to be in. And somehow we need to teach media literacy. We need to fight disinformation and companies need to be able to distill what's going on and let their employees know. Not everyone is affected by events in Ukraine, but many are. Many in Ukraine or many in bordering countries. Employers need to know, because we're talking about global employers, right? 
what do our people need to know? How do we get them information as quickly as possible? And how do we make sure it's true? And that is a huge challenge. Absolutely. It's such an important call out. We hear about misinformation and disinformation so much just within the ecosystem that we live in, but also just running rampant around the globe, especially as we see the rapid advancements in artificial intelligence and definitely hearing from a lot of people within the security, the business continuity space, being able to find clear factual information in the right places so that they can communicate with their employees, with their leaders, with their organization, and make sure that that information is true and accurate. It's just, it's such an important call out, not only for businesses, but just for global citizens, right? People wanting to understand what's happening in the world around them, what it means for them too. Exactly. And with so much volatility in the world, you know, I, I don't just look at this from a conflict perspective. Certainly in my time at AP, when I was looking at journalist safety, everybody was at risk. Right? Any journalist is potentially at risk. And they were suffering quite badly. And it was sometimes online abuse, but that was often turning into physical abuse because people would come to their homes, they would track them down. And so I think it's a really interesting debate to think, well, and especially in this era of hybrid work where People are dotted all over the place. And, and where does corporate responsibility begin and end? And, and to what extent do you have to keep your employees safe and know where they are and have a plan? What about the ramifications of a war? What about when there's a, a terror attack, worst case scenario, or something, a protest that you just need to know about because it could get bad? It's a super interesting conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely, we, we hear the term duty of care a lot, right? And where that extends to people are working in office buildings, people are working in the field, people are deployed to different areas, people work remote, people work hybrid. And I think you hit the nail on the head, just at least having and starting that conversation. What does that mean? What does it mean to protect your employees? What does it mean to make sure that they have the right information in their hands? It's just such an important conversation. And at least if you're having it, you're moving in the right direction, right? Right. So you've mentioned a few times the UN, you've obviously changed your career and your career path quite a bit since we last spoke. Can you talk a bit about your new role and responsibilities and what it's been like? Sure. Yeah, it only took me 28 years, but I decided it was time for a change. And I am the director of news and media at the United Nations at the headquarters in New York in the secretariat, where I'm currently sitting. And that means many things, but I run a team of journalists, video journalists, photographers, writers who are covering events around the world and within the UN. We publish in nine languages. So we try and reach as many people around the world as possible. It's a free service. We give it away and we are working on sort of deepening the partnerships around the world with media organizations, with universities and with the general public, just to try and break down these important issues that most people don't understand. Uh, and, and they're coming into it and they're perhaps shy about asking questions. We're trying to do a lot of explanatory journalism to explain why it matters, what's happening in Gaza, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in Sudan. I, I mentioned Sudan intentionally because everybody talks about the two other wars. They don't talk about the conflict in Sudan, which is a, a seriously worrying and important war that has ramifications, not just for Sudan, but for the rest of Africa. And we're also trying to focus on the Security Council. We are building a product around that. There's live streaming so you can watch it on your phone when the Security Council is talking about Gaza, live page coverage so we can cover what countries say and not just the permanent five, but the rotating countries who come onto the council that you don't normally hear of, some Africans, some Latin Americans, some Asian countries. So we're building products and trying to build new relationships. So it's a very interesting time to do it given all the geopolitical crises around the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's just such admirable work, obviously important that people can find, as you mentioned earlier, trustworthy information. And I definitely think there's a huge appetite as we talk to different people in our networks and our ecosystems. People are looking for explanations of what's going on, right? Many of the conflicts that we're seeing unravel around the globe, whether it's the war in Ukraine, whether it's what's happening in Gaza, you mentioned Sudan, people are really, really interested in understanding kind of the history there and why these things are happening, why they're happening now and what their implications are. And and you mentioned Sudan. I definitely think it's important to maybe just note what is going on there and what's happening on the ground there now. Yeah, just paramilitary groups that are fighting for for land, uh, fighting against the government, and people are dying in huge numbers. And there was a major exodus of people leaving Sudan. And it's just one of those conflicts that has ripple effects in a region. And the Secretary General said that Africa was sadly becoming an epicenter for terrorism in the world. And I think it's really important to just pause and think about that because Africa is such a vibrant, interesting continent. And yet, because of governance issues or instability, terror groups from Islamic State, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, and splinter groups are just taking control of large areas. And some foreign powers who have been there to try and keep the peace have left. And even the UN is being told, we don't want your peacekeeping forces anymore in some African countries. So Sudan is one conflict, but part of an ecosystem which I think is really, really worrying and could sort of set the agenda in years to come in terms of crisis. And don't forget, climate change is really hammering Africa. So you've got all these conflicts on top of each other. And the UN is doing some admirable work out there. And my team just feels more needs to be done to shine a light on this, because how much conflict can people absorb. I think people have already forgotten a lot of what's happening in Ukraine because we've got a bit of a stalemate and the pictures from Gaza are so horrendous and the pictures from the October 7th attacks in Israel were just beyond belief. And there's only so much you can take and a lot of people are turning away from the news. So we feel there's a real responsibility to shine a light on conflicts. But as with all media organizations, the challenge is how do you do it in a way that's compelling? You know, how do you, at what point do you run out of words to describe the horror of something? I think the answer to that is sometimes visually, show the facts visually, whether it's photography or video that can touch a different part of the brain. And so I'm looking to uh, leverage the, the, the UN's footprint on the ground in some of these hotspots, whether it's Sudan, Ukraine, Gaza, or other parts of the world uh, that are in trouble um, to, to get more information, more real-time information, and to get it out into uh, the general audience. Yeah, as you mentioned, Sudan, just so important that people understand, as you mentioned, what's happening there, the root causes and those global implications, particularly around terrorism. But as we think about yet another humanitarian crisis just unfolding, not only in Sudan, but across the entirety of North Africa, we're seeing so many things happening and just really unraveling right now. We talked a bit earlier, we've mentioned what's happening in Gaza since October 7th. What's the UN presence like in Gaza and how are your people really being affected by what's happening there on the ground? It's very big. Uh, So I think uh, the UN has more than 13,000 employees in Gaza. They work for an organization called UNRWA, which supports Palestinian refugees, not just in Gaza, but across the Middle East, Syria and Jordan and elsewhere. And they pretty much are the infrastructure. They offer the infrastructure that Gaza lacks for obvious reasons. So we're talking teachers, we're talking clinics, hospitals, even people that pick up the garbage. So it's a very big presence. And Before this conflict began, I could illustrate this in terms of how much aid was coming in from the UN every day. There was something like 500 trucks a day 
coming in, bringing supplies to Gaza, because otherwise there is just massive shortage of food and medicine. That stopped in this conflict. And that has been a big part of what we're seeing now in terms of the human suffering. The, the, the Secretary General referred to it recently as an epic human catastrophe. And there are more trucks coming in, I believe more than 100 a day, perhaps 200 a day, but it's still not nearly enough. And there are big delays getting those convoys in. Obviously, there are concerns, and therefore that stops trucks just getting in. Everything has to be inspected. But they are doing some incredible work, and they're caught up in their own flight to safety, if you like. You know, they're not just doing their job. They are part of the Gazans who are wondering what will they bring. So it really is great work. And they offer shelter to people who have had to leave their homes. But that doesn't mean safety either, because missiles do hit. And the UN has lost more than 150 people, which is the biggest ever death toll for the UN in any one situation. So in terms of a, a news organization, if we can call ourselves that inside the UN, we are talking to the agencies that go in to Gaza and come out. So we're not, we can't ask people who are in that sort of situation too much. And the communication is very difficult too. But the UN is an enormous organization. You've got the World Health Organization. You've got UNHCR for refugees. You've got UNICEF for children. Those agencies have managed to bring people in and to get the lay of the land. And they've done some reporting for us. They've sent back videos. They've sent back pictures. They've sent back firsthand testimony of what's happening. And we've been able to get that and give it to the media. Some media organizations are in there and they are doing similar work, but they also have their own issues of people who aren't safe and can they manage to transmit those images. So we're trying to bolster that as much as possible. There have been visits to some hospitals where you know, some really poignant pictures have been sent out about the suffering. So Gaza is a big focus for us. But I want to also say, because it's very important to get the balance here, because we are so active in Gaza does not mean that the organization has a one-sided view of this. The UN doesn't have such a setup in Israel because Israel doesn't require it. But there is a huge concern also here at the UN, which is expressed all the time about the hostages, about what happened on October the 7th. And serving people's interests in Gaza and trying to keep them alive does not mean a one-sided approach. It's just what the UN does. The UN has to get involved. The UN has to try and feed people. That's where, when we're at our best. But no one forgets how this began and no one takes away the significance of that. And that's important for everybody to remember. Yeah, very important. And I know a lot of people tend to focus on Gaza, obviously with the images and the numbers and the continued bombardments, but there's so much more obviously to the story. And I know the hostages are on everyone's mind, especially as we continue to see and everything going on there. We talk about so many of these different global conflicts. We've obviously got a war that's been going on for two years in Ukraine. We're seeing what's unraveling in the Middle East right now. We talked a bit about what's going on in North Africa. What organizations really need to know to stay resilient, especially organizations who might have people in these regions and really close by? Mental health is such a, a big issue, right? And I'm so, I think we're all so happy that it's become such a big issue in recent years. It was taken for granted. And you and I would have thought in terms of frontline journalists, let's make sure they're okay. Let's look into PTSD. But what I've learned in recent years is so many people are affected by this in so many ways. It's, it could be frontline journalists, it could be editors, it could just be members of the public that are seeing too much of a 
a certain topic and are suffering as a result and thinking there's no hope and I have to tune out, I can't stand this any longer. So it really does have an effect on our subconscious when we're surrounded by so many crises and there are, and that's not even to mention climate change or all these other existential things that could devastate the planet. It's really hard, but it's so key that we keep people engaged. So I do think companies have, I can't speak for all companies in the world, but I think a lot of companies should be thinking about this matter. And how do we keep morale up? How do we think of teamwork and mission and purpose? I think purpose is a a really good world. When you're surrounded by so much risk and danger and who knows what's around the corner, either in these conflicts or as a result, collateral damage from these conflicts or climate change, it's overwhelming, right? So companies that keep an eye on the mental health of their employees, talk about opportunity, try and keep things positive. I think that's one of the most important things that can be done. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up mental health. It's incredibly important. I think in situations like these, we immediately go to the people that are on the ground or being impacted most directly by a conflict or crisis. But of course, there's, again, those reverberating impacts, people who are seeing this consistently, journalists or people who are on the ground trying to offer aid to those who are being impacted, and then just people around the globe who are interested, wanting to be more informed, paying attention, and and just the images and the information can be so overwhelming running a global intelligence team, we talk about mental health a lot. The importance of acknowledging that we sometimes need to desensitize ourselves, but also take a step away and be able to really process things and have those conversations out loud. I think once again, you hit the nail on the head, really at least having that conversation and starting that conversation as an organization, as a team, to make sure that you're supporting your employees, that you're supporting the group in whatever ways that are needed and really taking those things into consideration. It's just incredibly important. I know it's impossible to predict the future, but if we could ask you to peer into your crystal ball for just a moment, what do you think are the potential next phases of these conflicts that we've talked about? What do you think's on the horizon? I've lost my crystal ball intentionally. It's impossible. I I think anyone that claims to really understand where these conflicts are going, it's guesswork. I mean, let's take the Middle East. Every week there is a new development which has serious ramifications. It could be what's happening in the Red Sea with the Houthis, could be Hezbollah could be Iran. And it's so hard to really project forward. But I don't think the conflict will be over anytime soon. And I would say the same for Russia and Ukraine, where there is a stalemate and the Ukrainian counteroffensive wasn't what many expected it to be. And there are so many external factors in both wars that will affect what happens on the ground. Could be the US election, the case of Russia and Ukraine, have massive ramifications, probably more so than what's happening on the ground where there is this stalemate. In Israel, what will happen politically there when the hostages are still not back? It's so important that they get delivered back and it hasn't happened and you're seeing more protests around that. So what does that mean for the stability of the government in Israel? If there is a change, there will be a change in the strategy towards Gaza. So Big picture, talking as a private citizen rather than sort of on behalf of the UN, I would say we need to buckle up and brace for quite long conflicts. I don't see solutions on the horizon. There is a lot of work going on behind the scenes. I see it here, but it's extremely difficult. And much of it is related to the strategies and ambitions of leaders. And some people say to the UN, well, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you ending this conflict? The UN doesn't have the power just to end a conflict, right? 
the UN is a place where countries come together. It's fascinating to see it, but you also realize the limitations because you're only as strong as the sum of your parts. And by parts, I mean member nations. If they don't want to stop a war, it's very, very hard just for external players to stop it. You can cajole, you can have a moral voice, but I see these conflicts either stuck or raging for quite a long time. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to be a realist about it as ever you are. As we start to wrap things up here, is there anything that makes you hopeful when it comes to the global turmoil, kind of everything we've talked about, any other words of wisdom? So one of the most poignant moments of the Ukraine war for me was the work of AP journalists who were in Mariupol. We talked earlier about how the war began and how we were beefing up our presence on the ground in Kyiv and in the East. But there was a group of three young journalists, young Ukrainians, who said, we're going to Mariupol. And they got in the car and they drove. And they had a sense because of their expertise on Ukraine and knowing that Mariupol was a very strategic part of Ukraine that Vladimir Putin would want. They set up camp there. And to me, that has been one of the most heroic episodes of journalism that I've ever witnessed. They stayed there and they were trapped for 20 days. And the work that they did was just terrifying to look at now because it came at high risk personally. But they were so dedicated to the story that they remained. In fact, there was no way out. But eventually they did manage to get out in a convoy. And they have worked on a documentary along with PBS. Uh, it's called 20 Days in Mariupol, which brings all of this footage together. And it's narrated by the video journalist, one of the three, whose name is Mr. Slav Chernov. And it's actually being nominated for an Oscar. And I think it stands a really good chance of winning. And it was so important. I referred to it earlier when I talked about the importance of being on the ground and eyewitness journalism. They were at the maternity hospital when it was bombed. And they recorded it. They took pictures. They won Pulitzer's. Photographers won Pulitzer's for their Ukraine coverage. But they've won pretty much every film award they've entered. And it was so heartening to me to see that the work of journalists on the ground telling the truth and with that being able to push back this huge misinformation campaign that erupted. I mean, here at the UN, the Russian ambassador said it didn't happen. Ambassadors around the world came out in a sort of organized way and said, this is fake news, but it was all there on camera. It could not be disputed. And it just, whether it's Ukraine or Gaza, Sudan, anywhere else, it's just, it just shows the importance of being on the ground, getting facts, and the fact that this has turned into a documentary that is so profound that I think is essential viewing for anybody that wants to understand war is very encouraging. And there's one line in particular that Mr. Slav narrates. He says, this is hard to watch, but it must be hard to watch. And that really stayed with me. It's like, sit, don't leave your seat. Keep watching it. You need to understand. You can't cleanse war. You need to understand the, the raw human collateral damage effect of war and the desperation and the lack of hope, but also the solidarity of people that help each other. It's quite tremendous viewing. That sounds so powerful and impactful and important, as you mentioned, for people to watch and be able to see and just, again, resonates so much, I think, with global business communities who are really trying to suss out that factual information and really share information that's true and real and impactful with their employees. 
Ian, thank you so much for being on the show. A a very genuine and heartfelt thank you. You are always so informative. You have so much great information, not only from your past, but obviously in all the work that you're doing now at the UN. And it's just incredibly enlightening to hear you talk about the ways that you and your teams are experiencing things that are happening around the globe and all of those reverberating impacts and everything that we can take away is just kind of a global business community, but just people who are global citizens in general. So thank you so much for everything you shared. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Ian and his work with the United Nations, click the links in the show notes. For video highlights from today's episode, just search for Alert Media on YouTube. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Sarah Prattley signing off until next time. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.